The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken." Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For, the blessed, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. 
He is their stronghold in this time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Uh, What a pleasure to open God's word with you this morning. My name is Kevin. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Quorum Deo Church. It's glad to be glad to be with you this morning. Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. The late Presbyterian pastor Eugene Peterson uh, popularized that phrase in his book of that title, and I think he meant to communicate something like this with that statement, that if you were to look at the cross-section of a growing Christian disciple, it would look very ordinary and very boring even. Commitment to scriptures in prayer, commitment to meeting with other Christians in simple uh, fellowship, uh, normal patterns of repentance. It would look very ordinary if you took that cross-sectional view. But if you telescope that life out over the course of a lifetime, and then you take another look at that long view, the depth of virtue and maturity and love would be so breathtaking, so otherworldly, that the ordinary acts of faithful obedience that produced such glorious Christ-likeness in a human being would no longer appear ordinary, but they would appear glorious as well. We might think of it like this, like the the, the graphic here on the screen. Uh, Trajectory plus faithfulness plus time equals Christ-likeness. The trajectory of your life towards God and the things of God, away from evil and towards him, a long time of just simple obedience and commitment to the things that he has given us to do and the means of grace he's given us, plus time, and you become like Christ. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were visiting uh, some really dear friends in Oklahoma, and I got the chance to meet up with an old mentor of mine. His name's Dave. He was the pastor of the church that Erica and I were members of whenever we first got married. A couple years later, he started a church, invited us to come with his launch team, and we did. And in the course of kind of being part of Dave's church, I got to meet with him for day, weekly for about five years, and he discipled me. He helped me to, know, to, to learn how to do the spiritual disciplines and the importance of them how to be a godly husband, how to shepherd people in the local church. So it was really good to to catch up with uh, Dave. And uh, all who know Dave would describe him as a person who's full of joy. He's got a really endearing and infectious laugh. They would describe him as kind and uh, generous and wise, very, very wise. And he became that kind of man because he has patiently cultivated those virtues by spending time with Jesus every day for 50 plus years. Uh, Dave is in his mid-70s now. He's dealt with some chronic health issues for for decades. And as I hugged him when we saw him a couple weeks ago, I was a bit sad uh, to just feel how old and frail his body seemed in that moment. Uh, But he he took me aside and in his characteristic way, I think he took his glasses off and said, Kevin, uh, he's about to retire. That's that's one of the things you're talking about. Kevin, I'm just praying for clarity about how God wants me to use the last 10 years of my life. I love Dave. And he's an example of what it means, what it looks like to finish the path of obedience well. And I think we need that because there are so many examples of of not finishing well. Uh, Sometimes it's moral failure. 
Uh, but sometimes it's, it's just suffering in life that sours rather than sweetens uh, the faith. Or maybe it's the wickedness of the world that leads us to disillusionment. There's a lot of reasons why we might lose our way off that path. And so we need uh, people like Dave to help us say, hey, you can finish well. Here's the way I think about this, friends. Okay, listen, if it's true that the spiritual, that the, we're involved in a cosmic battle, God's forces, the forces of, of evil on one side, uh, I want to be most dangerous in that battle when I'm 80. I, I want, like, if it's true that, like, hey, there are forces of wickedness and there's schemes, I want Satan's generals having meetings about me when I'm 80, saying, how do we stop this guy from making disciples? And I want to be that kind of man. And you get there by faithful obedience. Well, I think David, King David in this case, had something like this long obedience in mind when he wrote Psalm 37. Listen to, to the way that he says this in verse 3. Uh, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That has, that has the ring of this long and faithful obedience, just dwelling, befriending faithful obedience. Or skip down to verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will eventually Bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And there are other references in this psalm to establishing our steps and uh, keeping us keeping his way. And we know from verse 25 that David himself was at the end of his path when he wrote this. He says, I'm an old man now. And I wonder if you realize this psalm is kind of an unusual psalm, right? It, it, as far as David's psalms go, it's, it's, there's not much mention or really any mention of his personal experiences it's less emotional, a bit more rational than, uh, and just declarative than some of the other psalms that he wrote. It sounds a lot like Proverbs, doesn't it? This, this psalm feels like some an older man trying to impart some wisdom to the next generation. And we, I, as I read it, kind of the way that, if there's one verse that summarizes what David's trying to say, it'd probably be verse 34, where it says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. That sounds a lot like this long obedience in the same direction, doesn't it? Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he'll exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on while the wicked are cut off. Here's where David in this psalm is particularly helpful to us. He is calling us to walk the, 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 the way of lifelong faithful discipleship, but his eyes are wide open to the reality that that path goes straight through a world of evil, where, where wicked people seem to prosper and where there's chaos and confusion, where there's personal suffering. And so we, we may want to revise our earlier graphic and say, listen, discipleship is trajectory plus faithfulness plus time. And somehow doing that in the context of a world of evil and wickedness and chaos and personal affliction and suffering. And that's, that's, that's challenging. And so here's where, here's where I'd like to go. Okay, um, David is this old man offering us some wisdom, like the Proverbs. Let's take it. Let's take in some wisdom for the, the, the path. And so there's a lot of people who have way smarter than me, with way more training in philosophy or theology, that have talked about evil and suffering. My goal is much more modest. I just want to pull out a few observations of wisdom that David, from this psalm, might offer to us as we try to walk this path of long-term faithful obedience. I want to offer two, two things, two categories. We can categorize our thoughts in, into these two, two groups, okay? One is a warning, fret not over evil. The other one is an encouragement. You will not be cast headlong. 
So let's start with this warning. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. And then here's, here's the point. I'll just lay it out there. Fretting over what's wrong with others or with our culture can be a distraction from long obedience. Okay, so let's see how David says this. It's the first line in the psalm, right? Verse 1, he says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And he repeats this again. Jump down to verse 7. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So three times, David's repeating, fret not yourself over evil. It, sound, it kind of sounds like he's saying, don't worry about evil. That seems off, doesn't it? That doesn't quite seem right. In fact, just last week, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin the Greater, as he's known in my mind, <laughs> preached, a, preached a great sermon from Psalm 36 about moral clarity, being willing to see and to call out and to work against evil and injustice in the world. Well, that's kind of confusing then, isn't it? If David's telling us, hey, do that, but also don't worry about evil, so how does this no fretting business square with moral clarity? Well, we need to look a bit more closely at the text. What, what is the, the Hebrew word here for fret is kara, which means literally to ignite or to burn. So to be grieved and even to be angry at injustice is right. It's good. But the idea in these verses is, that, is this. Don't burn yourself up with anger or grief. And I wonder if that's something that you struggle with. I want to be delicate and not overly provocative in, 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 in what I say here. Um, but I think we might have a problem here. Um, listen, from 2016 to 2020, I knew a lot of Christians who seemed so consumed about their antipathy toward who was leading our country and the things that were happening that they seemed that that was the first thing on their minds and their hearts. And lo and behold, for the last two years, uh, that I, I know a whole other group of Christians who seem equally concerned and obsessed and fretting over what's going now that we have someone new in the Oval Office who's making those kinds of decisions. Uh, maybe just as a practical help, maybe some indicators here that you could have a fretting problem, okay? If you wake up uh, in the morning and you're more drawn to the news than to your Bible, then you might be struggling in this area. Uh, if you gather together with other Christians and your, uh, first, uh, in, in, in your first impulse is not to encourage one another with truth, to ask, hey, what's the Lord teaching you, but is instead uh, to rail or commiserate against that person, that leader, that group of people, that social movement, that aspect of our culture. If your impulse is not to encourage one another in the Lord, but instead to obsess and to fret about these things, then this may be an area where you need to give some prayer and some thoughts. Now, please, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't care passionately about these things and even work hard to resolve them, and that's what Kevin meant by moral clarity and conviction. That's really important. But what I am saying is we need to find ways of living in the tension between grieving moral decline and being burned with grief between having righteous anger at those who use their power for evil outcomes and being burned up with that anger. And, and here's the thing, walking in that line of tension, just like all these tensions in the Christian life requires biblical wisdom. 
And here we have a proverb-like psalm where David is offering something. So let me speak to the, to the fretting, uh, to those of us who maybe tend in that direction. Let me just offer a couple insights of wisdom uh, from this psalm that could help you on that path. Um, first, let God do the burning. Uh, the Hebrew word for fret is used a lot in the Old Testament, but it's almost, almost always used in one of two ways. One, to, to, to describe what's going on in someone's heart as they're sinning. Like Cain being burned up with anger towards Abel right before he murders him. Okay? And the second way that it's used is, to, is of God. That God's anger burned against sin, often his people, whenever they would, were transgressing the covenant and going after other gods, his anger burned against them. This is what this tells me. Okay? Um, it tells me um, that uh, we're not very good at this. We're not very good at fretting. And God is the one who frets over evil, and he'll deal with it so that we don't have to. So maybe the way to say it is, Christians, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. This, and I think this can be so freeing to those who feel an obsessive compulsion that you need to, to be fretting over the sins of others and to what's happening around you. God's job, your job is to be a faithful disciple, okay? Your job is to faithfully walk in obedience. God's job is to ultimately right the wrongs in the world, and he will do it. This psalm is really clear about that. Did you notice how frequently this phrasing of the righteous will inherit the land, the wicked will be cut off? Okay, so in verse 8 uh, is the, the first instance of this. He says, refrain from anger, uh, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. That's what we've been talking about. And then in verse 9, 4, or because, do that, because the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He says this again in verse 22, but notice here the language of blessing and curse. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those cursed by him shall be cut off. What's going on? What's going on here in these verses? What do they mean by cut off and what does David mean by cut off and inherit the land? Well, this is covenant language. It's covenant language. It's a metaphorical way of referring to the blessings of being in covenant relationship with God and of walking faithfully in obedience to the terms of that covenant. That's the inherit the land part. Or on the other side, the curse is associated with breaking that covenant relationship through idolatry and other forms of disobedience. And that's the being cut off part of this. Now, the Hebrew here for cut off is karah, and it's the same word used in places like Genesis 15, where, Abraham, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. It literally means, literally the way it's said is to cut a covenant. God cut a covenant with Abraham. That's kind of an odd way to say it, isn't it? Until you remember the way that the ancient people made a covenant with one another. Do you remember what they do? In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, take a cow, a goat, some birds, and cut them in half. Lay them apart from one another, and, we, and, and what, what they would do is they would walk between those to symbolize if we break the terms of this covenant, may we be as these cut animals. God is not overlooking evil. If you tend to fret, roll those cares onto the one who is more capable of handling them and has promised he will deal with the wicked. Well, second in, uh, insight of wisdom that might help the fretters among us is that the truth will come out. 
It may not feel like it, but the truth will come out. Look at verse 5, verse 6. He says, David says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And think about who's writing this. Okay, this is King David. Okay, if you know something about David's life, uh, it might provide extra insight into what's happening in this verse. Although he had, uh, so just think about like the early days of his life. He'd been anointed king by the prophet, right? But he wasn't yet the king. Uh, He was serving Saul, the current king, loyally, without betraying him, faithfully. Um, He'd acted innocently and righteously towards King Saul, but Saul slandered him. Uh, It drove him out into exile. He's in the mountains for years. And there were even times, remember, where he could have taken by force what he knew was his, the kingship, right? And he said, I'm not going to do that. He was... He had experience in trusting God to bring out what was right and good rather than taking it uh, on himself. So I can imagine him in the cave running from uh, Saul thinking, will the truth ever come out? Will it ever be be known to the kingdom that this slander is not true, uh, that I've been faithful? Yes, it was. Now he's an old man reflecting back on that and saying, God will bring forth Righteousness. He will bring forth the truth like the light of day. Now, there are some that are here uh, that are experiencing um, evil and um, difficult things along those lines. Perhaps it's an injustice against you in the workplace or uh, maybe a domineering relationship in the family or some other place that ought to provide safety for you. Uh, Maybe it's a mistreatment at school. And to those on the outside, it appears as if nothing's wrong. Uh, no one seems to see you. No one sees your innocence. And how discouraging uh, I think that must feel for you. Uh, to feel as if no one sees the mistreatment or the lies. Uh, worse yet, if you are somehow seen as suspect or part of the problem here, that can be really, really discouraging and may even like divert you from the path of long obedience. Well, take heart from these wonderful truths that David's providing. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. To the child lying awake in bed in the wee hours of uh, Christmas morning, it probably feels as if the sun will never come up. (laughs) In the same way, but it will, but it will come up, right? It will, that's the point. In the same way, uh, it may feel as if the light of truth on your situation is not ever going to come out, but it will. It will. So in sum, of this point here, this warning, uh, grieve wickedness, be righteously angry over injustice, but don't burn with grief, because ultimately that's God's job. And instead, commit your way to him in faithful obedience and trust, and what is good and right will ultimately be obvious uh, to all. That's what it looks like to walk in faithful, long-term obedience. Well, uh, I want to offer an encouragement, or David offers a lot of encouragement. I'm just choosing one here. An encouragement to you. You will not be cast headlong. Okay, so remember, what, what, remember what we're doing here. Again, we're, we're mining this psalm for wisdom to live that long obedience in the midst of evil uh, and suffering. And if the warning that we've been discussing for the last few minutes is mostly about the evil out there, this encouragement is a bit closer to the heart. It's a word of encouragement for the afflicted. Dealing with sickness or pain. Maybe it's professional failure or disappointment, uh, broken marriage, 
broken family relationships, loss of a child, loss of a parent. There's so much pain in the life uh, of a disciple. And I'm so sorry if this is where you find yourself now. Personal suffering is, is real, and it can certainly derail you from that long obedience that we've been discussing. Sometimes it's because it brings doubts about God's goodness. Sometimes it just brings a foster sense of disillusionment. Like, is it worth it? Is, is it worth, doesn't seem to be paying off for me. Is this even worth all of this effort? Well, friends, hear these encouraging words from verse 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I wonder, can you picture what it looks like to be cast headlong? I had an object lesson in this uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, we were leaving the church with my, my, my family the last day of VBS. Uh, my five-year-old is about the most joyful person that I've ever met in my life. So imagine that person having spent four days with Miranda Oswald. Uh, he was, this, this fellow was uh, super joyful, coming out, uh, pepping his step. And that's, I, that's what I saw. And then a moment later, I look over and he has tripped on the step. And his face is literally skidding across the sidewalk. The little fella fell headlong. And you know why that doesn't happen more often if you're a good parent? Uh, that you hold your kid's hand. Uh, younger kids, toddlers, especially when they're learning to walk. Do you remember that face? Uh, if you've got younger siblings, perhaps, or if you parented, uh, if they're learning to walk, you, you, they must walk on their own, but you hold their hand. And they fall. They don't stumble. They fall a lot. But they don't, they don't, they're not cast headlong because you hold them up. Their feet dangle for a moment and you hold them until they find their footing again. That's the image that David is giving us in this song, in this, in this verse. Uh, commentators all agree that to fall here, it says, though he fall, he will not be cast headlong. To fall here means afflictions, not moral failures. And so do you see then what this verse is saying? Christian, though you suffer, you are resilient. You rise again because the Lord holds your hand. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this in terms of buoyancy, and I find that a really helpful image. Christians are buoyant. They live in the same waters as everyone else, and they, they, they experience those things, but they come back to the surface always. There's a buoyancy. They're always coming back. Eugene Peterson, uh, in the book that I mentioned earlier, um, has a nice quote about this. Listen to what he says. The Christian life is going, uh, is going to God. And in going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, are citizens under the same governments, pay the same prices for groceries and gasoline, fear the same dangers, are subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, are buried in the same ground. The difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil 
He guards our very life. It's encouraging. It's encouraging. We walk those same grounds. We endure the same afflictions, but we do it differently. John Calvin, in his commentary on verse 24, puts it this way. The simple meaning of this verse is that when God visits his servants with severe afflictions, he at the same time mitigates them that they may not faint under them. The miseries of the godly are so tempered with God's fatherly mercy that they fail not under their burden. And even when they fall, sink not into destruction. So dear sufferer, God delights in your way. And do you see how God's fatherly affection for you has caused him to temper your suffering? Um, That unexpected resource, financially or otherwise. Uh, The unlikely brother or sister who's been just surprisingly kind and patient and walked with you. The relief of some temptation in some area of your life while you endure this hardship that you're experiencing. Or what about the way that the scriptures just the exact thing that you need to hear keeps coming up on the lips of a friend or in your devotional time. God keeps meeting you with specific promises and truths from his word. Do you see these traces of his fatherly mercy in the midst of affliction? It's his way of holding you up until your feet find the ground again. A child might need that hand-holding just for those first couple of years, but we need it for a lifetime. And this verse is saying, He provides it. He provides it. So the simple point then of this encouragement is this. So so, so many um, have allowed personal affliction, let me put it this way, for so many personal affliction has caused uh, them to not finish the race as well as they would have. But it need not be so because the Lord is holding your hand. So discipleship, Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. So the presence of moral corruption and evil in the world around us, in, of, of personal afflictions, those things can, can put us off course and keep us from finishing well. Uh, and so we need to give attention to those things. There's a lot of attention right now to the idea of deconstructing um, your faith abandoning the way of God altogether. And if that's where you're at, we, we love you. And we want to walk with you uh, as you face those kinds of questions. Um, but actually, usually, usually, not finishing the race well is much more subtle than that. It, it looks more like distraction for long periods of time with other good things in life, perhaps, but that are not the ultimately good things. Maybe it's uh, allowing hardship or discouragement to keep you on the sidelines when you should be actively involved in working for the kingdom. Maybe it's an unspoken belief that you have nothing to offer. You have nothing that you could contribute to the work of God. So all of those more subtle things are really what I have in mind here. Let me close with a few exhortations to uh, groups of us that are in different seasons of life. So a word to young Christians. I want to say something about the importance of orienting your trajectory early in life. So think of it this way. Okay, if you are going on a journey in a straight line, and you're at the end of that journey, 
and you have a minor, you're minor, you have a few degrees off. The end result of where you end up may not be that far from where you intended to go. But if you begin your journey, even a degree in the wrong direction, where you end up years later will be quite different from where you intended to be. The trajectory that you set in your life as a young person will have disproportionate outcomes on how much of a, how, what kind of disciple you will be when you are my friend Dave's age. Your trajectory matters a lot. So, uh, memorize scripture. Uh, Commit yourself to the means of spiritual disciplines in ways that will cultivate godly character now and set you in the right direction. Make the kinds of choices about who you spend your time with that you know are going to form you into the kind of person that will ultimately be a faithful, long-term disciple of Christ. Your trajectory is extremely important as a young Christian. For those of us in the middle years, uh, my, my word of encouragement is this, or exhortation, that uh, let's not neglect the ordinary spiritual disciplines and ways of growing as a disciple during these busy years of maybe getting your career off the ground, uh, maybe starting a family, raising a family. It's really, really tempting to just say, okay, I'm going to get back to these things that I know are going to help me grow as a disciple whenever I have more time. But I, I think that you misunderstand the fundamental nature of a human being. We are habit-formed creatures. If you do not form those habits and sustain them in those busy years, you will not be able to re, uh, recreate them whenever you have more time. We must commit ourselves to those normal means of obedient discipleship in the busy years. It's really important. A word to older Christians. You have more to offer in your sunset years than you have ever had in your life. Uh, the wisdom that you have is needed. And so I, I could have said, I almost said as a young person, I'm, not, I'm, I'm definitely the middle age, okay? We in the young and maybe the middle age, we need you. We, we need you engaged. We need you to disciple I need you to tell me how to raise a family and tell me the lessons that you learn from failure and from success. Uh, you need to be engaged, and we want your, your, your service. You have a lot to offer. And so finishing the race well might look like, hey, I, I, I need to, like, kind of like Dave, you know, how can I use these, this last season, whether it's 10 years or 20 years, how can I use this season to invest in making disciples? If you want to put it, a fine point on it, that's what we're talking about. How do you cultivate virtue in yourself and make disciples? Because that's what God's called us to be. Well, one last thought. No matter where you're at on the path of long obedience, what you ultimately need, if you're going to go the distance with God through evil and, and suffering and, and craziness and just the kind of chaotic, chaotic world that we live in, if you're going to do that, go the distance with God in evil and suffering, you need a firm conviction that he has already gone the distance for you, right? So Jesus willingly entered our world of sin and evil, and he experienced great personal affliction, personal suffering, and yet he obeyed faithfully and perfectly to the end. In fact, friends, he went further than that. Because his long obedience was not met with covenant blessings, but with the curse. He faithfully obeyed to the end, but he did not get what was promised to us. He got the affliction. He got the, 
the curse. Do you remember when we preached through the life of Abraham? I remember this, I remember Bob's sermon on Genesis 15. Okay, so what happened exactly whenever God and Abraham made that covenant? He cut these animals apart. They're making this covenant. But do you remember what happened? This is so profound. God put Abraham to sleep. And he appeared as a smoking pot, and God alone walked through the pieces, indicating that all along, from the beginning of his covenant with his people, he intended to take on the curse himself. He knew that we would not be righteous, that we would not follow the covenant, and he took it. His intention was to take it on himself. And this, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Jesus became, redeemed us from the curse, by becoming the curse for us. So he was literally torn apart like those animals that, that Abraham sacrificed so that you might enjoy the blessings of life and flourishing in the presence of God himself. That's the God who holds your hand. And out of eternal gratitude, eternal, limitless gratitude for his taking that curse and us receiving those covenant blessings uh, out of that gratitude, may we live lives of faithful, long-term discipleship and fruitful ministry to the very end. Let's pray to that end. O righteous Father in heaven, you are the same today, yesterday, and forever. But we are not. We, we are fickle. But Lord, we want to live lives of long obedience in the same direction. Would you empower my friends with your spirit to do exactly that? Would you protect us, Lord, from distraction, disillusionment, discouragement, and doubt? Would you uh, speak to us clearly about how you would have us to grow in virtue, how you would have us to invest our energies and our gifts in the work of building your kingdom and serving your people? Lord, I pray that each of us would get to the end of the road and be able to look back um, at, at a life well-lived, a life of discipleship. And yet, as we look back over it, it's not, a, it's not a moment of boasting. We look back at that and we say, yet not I, but Christ in me. We pray in his name. Amen.